Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end, it's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Hola, listeners. Welcome to the Adventure Seed Podcast, a random roller podcast where every show is different. I'm Heather, and I'm here today with Whitney. Uh, we have rolled for a fun new adventure out of 20 possibilities, and we rolled for fresh drinks. We're talking about the New York Times article, NASA Names Dark Energy Telescope for Nancy Grace Roman by Dennis Overby, and the article, Mother Sea Turtles Might Be Sneakier Than They Look by David Waldstein. It's all about the science. Uh, I'm drinking red, red wine. And I have another ice-cold Diet Dr. Pepper. So stick around and see what chaos we come up with today. What, what we're doing our music intro, because we're trying to be all fancy, fancy, so... <laughs> <laughs> what do y'all think? Are y'all jamming with us? We're ready to drop a mic. <laughs> So to start us off, we would like to talk about um, NASA naming their telescope for uh, a true pioneer of NASA. So uh, Nancy Grace Roman is actually a Tennessee girl, so Mm -hmm. whoop Tennessee. Born in Nashville. And uh, she joined NASA in 1959. Um, Dennis Overby wrote a great article about her, and it is in the... New York Times yes. journal. Uh, we uh, we had a little bit of issues because when you click on the New York Times mm-hmm. too many times, it turns into you must pay us money. And why I appreciate the the written word and mm-hmm. I want to give money to those things. Sometimes you're just poor and come on, give us more article than two. Yeah, I think sometimes you can get five. It depends. That's not them. They no. don't let you have five. No, uh, and and. Newsprint media has really been struggling to stay relevant in a digital age where everyone can get everything online, um, often pirated for free. And so we we do understand the struggle that these large newspapers face, and we understand the importance that money allows them uh, to to run articles, to do in-depth investigations. Like, without funds, they can't bring us the news that matters. Um, But we also want to read their stories. So we went to Google and found a great alternative for finding New York Times online. Whitney found it. And I don't want to take credit for your massive, amazing Google skills. That's not what I meant. I was so like off screen, off screen, off recording. I was saying I'm trying to watch my ums. So sorry. <laughs> oh, should I apologize for minute two forty six oh, last we episode? Both interrupt for a second. We dropped the mic and we're working on it. This is a new podcast, yeah. so there's going to be a few little bumps along the way. At least until episode seven. <laughs> I definitely did not mean to interrupt. So shoot. Uh, but 
We found a great source through a, a WordPress style site that has every New York Times article you could probably We're imagine. We're a little scruffy around here, mm -hmm. and uh, we kind of had a <clears throat> hoist our Jolly Roger, and we found the Daily James. So, because of the Daily James, we were able to read this article as many times as we want. And Nancy Grace Roman is just pretty cool. They call her the mother of Hubble. Uh, she died in 2018, but mm -hmm. it was her birthday last week. Yeah. So we want to give a belated happy birthday up in the stars where you are, mm -hmm. uh, part of all of us now. And it's just really exciting to... And it's so fitting that she is yeah, in to, the stars. To know, you know that this woman from Tennessee, a southern girl in a male-dominated field... Mm -hmm was able to go and you know, kind of was the person who built the, the Hubble Space Program. Like, she was the foundational support for that telescope getting built, installed, mm -hmm. yada, yada. Well, and not just a male-dominated field. In the 50s, it was a male-dominated workforce. Like It was a male-dominated everything. Yeah, so she, I mean, she not only broke into a field that, that was not female-friendly, and still, there's, there's many news articles about how science and physics and, and these industries are not as female friendly. Mm -hmm. um, and so for her to break into this field, to persist through that was so powerful to me as I was reading this article. And she's now considered the champion of astronomy in space for her persistence and for her dedication to this field of work. Um, and I love that Dennis Overby included that in his article. It, it just, it made me really happy. And so the, the telescope that she was named after is, uh, the, it says the uncatchy name, and he could not be more right, the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, or WFIRST acronym. And W is the name for, and this is all quoted, W is the name for a crucial parameter that measures the virulence of dark energy thus giving a clue to the fate of the universe. And I just want to say that W, he, he misquoted this article. And, well, he misquoted that, that idea. It's really W has a triple meaning because I'm a W, and mm -hmm. I am nothing but dark energy and chaos. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it has a triple meaning, especially to, to us here. He just doesn't know you. <laughs> he just doesn't realize. I'm going to type a little email, an electronic <laughs> mail signature to mm -hmm. him. <laughs> And let him know that he, he he has a triple meaning. Yes. So the purpose of this telescope <laughs> is to investigate, and this is again from the article quoted, investigate the mysterious dark energy speeding up the expansion of the universe and I, to also scan for exoplanets belonging to distant stars. Yeah, so I can't wait to see what, what all uh, resources and articles and journals come out of the the new Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. So it's just exciting. For me, because I remember being a little girl going out in the backyard, we had a telescope, and some of my earliest memories are laying in the dark. I grew up deep out in the country of East Tennessee. There were no street lamps. Our sky was pristine. It still is for it the most still part. Is. I mean, the light pollution is gone once you get mm -hmm. 30, mile, 30 minutes out. And I remember laying on, this, on the blanket with my dad, him teaching me the names of the different constellations, the different stars that make up those constellations. And as I've gotten older and I've learned more about space... This idea of dark matter and dark energy, because you think space is like this large void. Well, there's a and yin and yang to everything. Yeah. And and so learning about these components of space has been so fascinating to me. And before we recorded this, Whitney, you mentioned going to an astronomy lab in elementary school as a field trip. Can you tell our listeners about that experience? I completely forgot about that. Uh, so um, it's the red wine, I think. <laughs> uh, um, so... 
University of Tennessee had a a program with the Knox County Schools, the elementary schools, and you could go and participate in the science programs in the summer, and they had little events spread out throughout the year. And the telescope, the observatory here, had one of those events where you could come and see, a, I think it was a they solar eclipse. They still do it once or twice a year. Oh, they do it several, yeah, for mm -hmm. sure, for lots of lunar events and, and solar events, celestial events, if you will. Mm -hmm. But I went to one around the fourth grade, and when I saw her picture when we were looking at this article, I swear, and I could be wrong, it could be my little fourth grade brain, but I swear it was her. And just to know that I possibly met this fine woman just really got my fangirling going, well, and I was just really excited. And knowing that she's from the Nashville area, oh, I'm, it's, sure, I'm sure I saw it's her. It's not out of the world of possibilities for her to have come to one of the university's I mean, premier six degrees space of Kevin programs. Bacon. Right. You know, like, I'm sure somehow I've seen her. Mm -hmm. And UT does have one of the premier space programs, mm -hmm. so I just, I love it. I think it's cool. It's a nice resource to have in our own backyard, for sure. Yeah, and um, so as we're talking about space and galaxies and all that stuff, it's not really a correction, per se. It was, we, I openly admitted I didn't know the answer to something, and uh, brain, brain thought got back out to us and uh, gave me a well-documented mm -hmm. explanation of all the things that we missed or some of the cool things about the tech manual from the Enterprise. Yes. You know, space. Mm -hmm. I was going from space to space. Space to space, yes. So uh, Jason wanted to let us know that the captain that I wasn't sure, you know, like I thought maybe they were on the captain's yacht. Mm -hmm. And that's why they were going, and one of the older captains was coming yeah. to look at the new Enterprise, and he was like, yeah, you've got the name right. And I just, he was a grumpy old dude, and I loved it. Uh, it was the captains, so the captains in order, the first captain of the first Enterprise, 1701, was Robert April, mm -hmm. and then Christopher Pike, and then James Kirk. The original Enterprise was supposed to be nearly 20 years old by the time Kirk takes command. So uh, I, I just thought that that was really kind of interesting, yeah. and I really wanted to appreciate Jason Bowles for reaching out to me and tells and, t and told me, you know, kind of yeah. what was what. Well, and I don't know how many of you follow the new Star Trek series on CBS All Access, uh, but they are doing a Captain Pike show now. So hopefully maybe we learn more about Captain April in some of those episodes. That would be cool to get more of that backstory. And as as all the uh, the Star Trek fanboys say, I really hope it doesn't mess it up too mm -hmm. canon-wise for them. Yeah. I, I do understand that this gives them an opportunity to kind of fix some of those weird technicalities. Mm -hmm. And um, what is it when there's a disparity between the two connections? Like... I know exactly what you're talking about, but I cannot remember the You're word the for English it. teacher. I'm so sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, so we just want to say again, thank you to Jason mm -hmm. for reaching out to us. Uh, we really appreciate the comments that you all are making on our shows and our links when we share them. So please keep that up. We if, want to hear from you. If any of you are secretly experts on dark matter and want to give us cool science reads about this, it's one of my favorite subjects. And I admit that I know almost nothing. So you know more than almost nothing. It's it's a it's a bigger topic and a more understanding topic than you realize. If yeah. I can get it, you can get it. Yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, we're going to actually move on to our second article. Again, I don't know why we keep doing this to ourselves. We get so excited about the source and we're like, oh, I don't know if we can do this. This doesn't sound like it'll be very fun. And then we find two articles that we like, (laughs) just like with Dragon Plus. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So our second one is something I think that you will enjoy a lot as a big old mother bear. So this one, Mother Sea Turtles Might Be Sneakier Than They Look, also was in the New York Times. And we also sourced it through the Daily James so that we could read the whole thing. And that one is written by, uh, let's see here, David Waldstein. Yes. Waldstein? Waldstein? Waldstein. It's like the Berenstein Bears. Yes. Okay, let's not go there. No. That'll be a fight. I I have strong feelings regarding the Mandela effect and the Bernstein Bears. Yeah. <laughs> so David Waldstein Stockstein, wrote uh, this the sea turtle article, mm-hmm. and it's pretty interesting. So the article discusses the way that mother turtles disguise their nests. But recently, two scientists decided to study these turtles in Trinidad and Tobago, and their names are Dr. Kennedy and Dr. Burns. And what they found is that, so first for those that maybe don't know how sea turtles bury their eggs, they climb up on, onto the beach late at night, mm-hmm. and they dig a hole, they lay their eggs, they throw sand back on the hole, mm-hmm. and what has been assumed for a long time is that they just meander back towards the sea and sometimes they do it efficiently and sometimes they don't well like kind of like when a dog go, and i this is not the same thing and i understand it's not the same yeah. thing as giving birth so don't hit me but when a dog goes number two mm-hmm. and they kick that grass up yeah like i was just imagining that something purged from the sea turtle's body right and they were like kicking or flipping their little fins mm-hmm. and getting getting the sand i don't know you right. know what i mean like yeah. I, I always imagine that but they were given that question a few too many times, and they wondered that question a few too many times mm-hmm. themselves, and here we are with some research. So the two specific turtles they studied were the leatherbacks and the I word think the loggerhead. Yeah. Um, so they looked at these turtles, and what they found was when the turtles buried their nest, they didn't... Oh, the hawksbill. Oh, sorry. No, you're good. So they didn't just bury the nest and go straight back to the ocean. They buried the nest and then in a random direction, every single time, would go six or so feet away from the nest and then dig a new hole, shuffle some sand around before going back to the ocean. Sometimes they did this once. Sometimes they did this up to a dozen times, these these fake nest holes. Well, and I don't know if you know this or not, but it... it it takes a lot to, to have birth. Yeah. <laughs> and That's the funny because she's the mom. I'm not the mom. <laughs> and so that you use a lot of energy to do that. Mm-hmm. So it was, she was, she's expending an, an awful lot of energy. Mm-hmm. She does not have to do this, which makes it interesting. Yes. And so what the scientists address is it was originally assumed that maybe the turtle was just struggling to get back to the ocean or maybe the turtle got confused about which direction to go. And so they had done this, but... The scientists asked, why would they spend that time disguising an area that's not their nest? And so they watched these turtles over a significant amount of time. And it was from 2013 to 2019. So six years of turtle laying habits. That's a lot of data. That's a lot of data. And they found what they think is happening is that these turtles are creating decoy nests. With the idea being that a and predator would see this this ruffled up sand 
and dig in the wrong place for the turtle eggs. So if you're a turtle and you've laid eggs in one hole, but you've created six other fake holes, there's only a one in seven chance that your eggs are going to get discovered. I mean, I like those odds. Right. And when they observed predators digging for eggs, they found that predators would check one or two holes and then give up. So this significantly increased the odds of the turtle egg survival. And I just think that's so fascinating as, as a mother... When baby turtles come out of the nest, and Whitney, you talked about this before we recorded, the the baby turtles have a, a, an intense survival instinct. Absolutely. But when they're eggs, they're completely defenseless. And unlike birds or other egg-laying animals, the mother's not there to defend them. Well, because the mother's trying to give it, the, the, the turtle eggs, the best opportunity to live. If the mother is there and hanging around, it's drawing those predators mm-hmm. in. Yeah. And so it's trying to to keep them safe and doing only what a mom can do mm-hmm. and, and, and just reading her own instincts. So her survival instincts for herself and for her eggs is to stay away as much as possible mm-hmm. and to do these several decoy nests. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about the research itself and the process they went through. I'm currently a doctoral candidate and I'm not to the, the experiment-conducting phase of, of research yet. I'm only in the process of writing literature reviews. But when we're in our doctoral classes, when we're studying the methodology for how to create our own studies, we talk so much about how it's important to have scientifically-backed methodology, to have past research support the method that we use. So if one person has conducted a study in this similar manner and gotten good results, and you're conducting a similar study with that similar method, then your results are more justifiable because it's research-based. Right. So these two scientists presented a paper similar to this about decoy nests uh, to a Canadian journal in 2016, and it did not pass the peer review. Uh, For those that are not aware, peer review is when other scientists blindly read your study. They have no idea who you are. They have no knowledge of you at all. It's just the information that you give them. And they read it and they say this holds muster or it doesn't based on the scientific knowledge that we have on how to conduct studies. So that paper did not pass peer review. Their new paper that they have released talking about these decoy nests has passed peer review. And specifically, the study's methodology was praised, the way that they went about conducting the study. There's some scientists who still find some, some verbiage, semantical differences with it. There's, there's one scientist named Alexander Gauss who feels that calling it a decoy nest or calling it a disguise nest, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Uh, But these researchers have taken that criticism and they've said that it's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, they're saying this is great that someone is challenging our research. Because when you push back on someone's research, the only way to prove it correct or incorrect is to restudy it. And when a study is replicated and redone, it either brings more credit to the initial study, it gives it more validity and reliability, uh, or... It proves it incorrect. But either way, you've studied something twice. You have twice the knowledge that you previously had. And so they're hoping that other scientists see this research, they see the challenges being made to this research, and they go out and they research more turtle habits and more turtle 
breeding, nesting rituals. Absolutely. Uh, the more data that you can have, you, you can get a sample from one shark. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you get a sample from 10 sharks, same species and everything, mm -hmm. you're going to learn so much more about that one mm -hmm. species. You're going to learn so much more about that one bacteria. It just depends on, mm -hmm. on, on what you're doing. And science welcomes data. Yes. Like, the, that's kind of the whole point of right. it. <laughs> Please do try to prove me wrong. Absolutely, because you mm -hmm. might just end up proving me right. Mm -hmm. More right than you realize. Yeah. Or, or I've learned something new. Mm -hmm. like, and and life and then is all I about become a better researcher. Absolutely. And life is about the continuous study. That's mm -hmm. why it's called continuing education. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called, you know, I don't know, life. Yeah. Like science is very important to us and we just don't realize just how small and insignificant. And something that I kind of want to touch on. Mm -hmm. So you're all about the science and the reading yes. and the technical and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. And then you have somebody like me is how can I relate this to gaming? Right. How can I relate this to books or my weird... I, I'm an escapist. You are well, a realist. As we saw in the Star Trek universe, they took real science, real scientific evidence, and they applied it to give their universe meaning and flavor. So, and Wizard of the Coast is one of my favorite scientific programs. <laughs> <laughs> and they, in their 5E of Dungeons & Dragons took that science, that real world application, turtle science. and turned it into a turtle. <laughs> T-O-R-T-L-E. So Heather, when I talked to her about the turtles, <laughs> thought that I was just making up some fanfic, fangirl, yeah. uh, well, rigmarole. <laughs> and I just I just assumed like, oh, a turtle. It's like the D&D &D version of Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah, no. No, mm. not at all. I've learned so much about this new playable race in D&D. &D. So a turtle is, they, they, like on their max end, if, if you're a min-maxer, uh, on their max end, they're 450 pounds mm -hmm. of chonky boy, and <laughs> they can be up to six feet tall. So, I mean, you, it is basically a ninja turtle. Yeah. A TMNT, if you will. But they, so the turtles are born for adventure. Like, that's their whole premise. Mm -hmm. And very much like the sea turtles and the tortoise of our real world, they they go out in the world. They're they're born kind of alone. Mm -hmm. They uh, go they go out and make their adventure, and they are, they're nothing but survival instincts, mm -hmm. which ties in with the real world with sea turtles that turtle. we are just yeah. discussing. You know, you, when they break out of the nest and they break out of that fortress, they they go they go for it. They go towards the light, which is why we have so many mm -hmm. kind of disasters with the like the natural world right now. And when sea turtles are born pre-COVID, they would go towards the interstate sometimes because yes. the lights and the noise and they don't they don't really have vision yet. They're, right. they're just seeing light and they're going mm -hmm. towards light, towards the moon and towards the ocean and mm -hmm. those sounds. So they get a little bit mixed up. But with COVID-19, they're just going straight for the ocean. And the turtles, what the turtles do in their lifespan is they're adventuring their whole lives. And the last year of their life, they go, they build a fortress and they have their baby, mm -hmm. and they teach their baby the adventuring spirit, For and then year. they and then they pass. They they're gone, and so the turtle is is born in a fortress. There's not really turtle towns. Yeah. They don't really have villages in in these these. You don't really learn a whole lot about them unless you experience a game now, with a turtle. There is a specific D and D adventure manual. And I cannot remember the name of it off the top of my head. 
uh, Whitney's going to Google this because she's she's got the Google speed. Uh, so this specific manual does mention that there's like a special island that they came from. And so there is like an island home world on the D&D map for these turtles. Is it a hoi hoi? <laughs> so in the Forgotten Realms wiki, I, I, I just kind of Googled it and it said that it was the Fortress of Hoi Hoi. Yes. That can't be real. That's, is that true? Uh, let me <laughs> let me see if I can find what I had what I had found. So we're on the Forgotten Realms.fandom.com. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Snout of Om, Omgar. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And it gives them a like a natural defense defense system against the predators on mm-hmm. the mainland, right? Yes. Yeah. Just learning about turtles was so much fun. And if you like, have you played a turtle character in a game? Because if you have, we we want to know about yeah. it. And like, I know that Heather Heather was really excited because we were going to have a very scientific discussion today. And I still just needed to get my gamer in. Oh, definitely. And <laughs> well, and to me. Because I do love science and knowledge of the world, to see it applied in these really fun ways, like that's someone taking the real work of of scientists and making it meaningful. Because if you can't make science meaningful to people, people will stop studying it. People will stop caring. Absolutely. And so being able to take real world science and apply it to a spaceship or a playable character in a game or a card deck just makes it that much more fun and interesting. And I always hope that maybe that will make someone want to go and find the source material, the real science behind what it is they love. I couldn't agree more. That said, talking about going out in the world and seeing things you love, do you think that maybe we could roll up something fun for our next Adventure Seed podcast? Absolutely. Grab that Uh, die, girlfriend. So... As always, we roll a 20-sided die to see what we will read next time. Ooh, we rolled high. We rolled an 18. All right. So we are going to be reading Canto, written by someone of the last name Boer, and designed and arted. Arted? That's not how you say that. Illustrated? Illustrated by someone named Zucker. I don't, like, why Why would you not put first names on the front of this comic? Like, are they trying to be all cool and, oh, so, it's Drew Zucker and David M. Boer. Excellent. Ooh, colors by Vittorio Aston and letters by Darren Bennett. Excellent. I'm really excited. I am too. So, if you all, have, this is a graphic novel. Yes. Uh, for those of you who do not know. And it is, it is heavily influenced by, like, Wizard of Oz uh, Dante's it's, Inferno. It's got a little bit of Dante's Inferno in it because of the word canto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so, like, one of the reviews from Delilah Dawson, who I just, I love Delilah Dawson, um, from Star Wars, Phasma, Marvel Action, Spider-Man. Oh, uh, nice. Dark and magical with a glowing heart of gold. If the Wizard of Oz and Rabbit, Labyrinth gave birth to a hero, it would be canto. I love Labyrinth. And the art is fantastic. Like, I won't read a comic or a mm-hmm. graphic novel if I don't like the art. I mean, I can like the storyline all day long. I just can't get into it because mm-hmm. half of it is the art. So much is expressed through the artist. I, just, like, I think more than half is the art, only because the art fills the page so much more than words ever could. True. 
And so to me, if I can't if I can't get on board with the art style or the line style or, or dialogue the coloring, and movie, like yeah, I struggle so much with the book. Well, so and not to step away from the printed word because that's that's we're bookworms here. However, Wally, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but Wally has minimal dialogue. Yes. Um, the the visual is everything. Yes, and that's how I feel about comics. They don't even have to af- actually say words. There there might not be any lettering. I will still enjoy it if the art's pretty. Yes, and and the art tells the story. And what's so nice about art is there's art that you and I might not have as our cup of tea, and someone else loves it. Absolutely. And so when we say that we don't like the art on something. Please disagree with us. <laughs> well, I mean, and you're if, going if to. You, if it's like, something we all, you love. We all art different. We all geek different. Mm-hmm. We all, you know, everything is, is different. We all have our preferences. Mm-hmm. And uh, some things are more accepted by a larger group of people. Yes. And that's okay. And then you have your niches for mm-hmm. other other people. And in this one, I honestly think that everyone can agree. It's got bold lines, crisp coloring, the, the, the life in this little... It's, it's clearly not, it, it's not a humanoid. Mm-hmm. It might not even be technically living, but you can see the life in its eyes. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about it. It's just got gears all over the cover. I'm really excited about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to know what I'm going to drink because I really enjoyed having this red wine. Yes. So I'm going to roll. I got a 15. So I get a tequila my way baby that's gonna be a margarita yes all right (laughs) and what are you gonna get heather i rolled a 16 i get a milkshake your way Ooh. Ooh, i'm going to probably try to track down at 10 o'clock in the morning on a sunday (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll get you a a milkshake chocolate milkshake Mm. all right so uh let's see here we had fun Today, we had a very fun one-off today at Adventure Seed Podcast. So thank you for being with us here. It looks like we are going to be reading the Canto novel for the next time. Follow our quest, Adventure Seed Podcast, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and wherever you get your podcast. We are definitely on Apple now. Just search for all three words, Adventure Seed Podcast. And may the dice always be in your favor. We hope you roll well. Bye, guys. Get a rare view into the human side of wealth management leaders, innovators, and influencers with the Big Reveal podcast from Suzanne Syracuse in partnership with InvestNet. Tune in and subscribe to find out why she calls it the Big Reveal. Roofers, are you tired of using a bunch of selling tools that don't talk to each other? Streamline your selling process with GAF Project. Manage leads, measurements, presentations, estimates, even payments right on your iPad. Visit gaf.com project.